0: Welcome Lovers of Product. Today I'm here with Catherine Hume, VP of Product and Strategy at Integrate AI. We're going to spend a little bit of time talking about her background in product, why she's passionate about a product, and how artificial intelligence and machine learning are going to affect both the profession and craft of product management, but also how product people should think about delivering their software or services to their customers. With that, Catherine, why don't you start by giving us a little overview on your background?
1: For sure. Thanks so much for having me, Eric. So my background and journey into product is somewhat strange. I started as a math major when I was an undergrad and then I did my PhD in comparative literature and focused on 17th century history of science and math and literature and was planning on becoming an academic until I realized that that was a fate that I didn't necessarily want these days as there's not a lot of jobs and I didn't want to end up working in Nebraska and going from postdoc to postdoc, let's say. So I was out at Stanford and you know, in the heart of Silicon Valley and decided that I wanted to try my hat in the tech community, and worked at a couple of startups based out in the Valley prior to entering into machine learning, which is now just my passion. I've been in the field for a couple of years, and I guess coming from a joint background between mathematics and literature, the role of product in sitting at the center of the organization between the engineering team and the sales and marketing team just was a a natural fit and took me a little bit of time to evolve into it, but I've been happy since I've landed in this position.
0: So what in particular makes you so passionate about product?
1: Okay, so I my experience since I've been working in the tech industry has largely been on the B2B side versus the B2C side. So a lot of my comments here are going to be grounded from that perspective. But I find that, first off, I... Love working in early stage companies, startups that have yet to find product market fit. So I'm just a glutton for all of the ambiguities and hard choices and hustling that it takes to get a company off the ground and try to align the technically possible with The appetite and needs of an existing market, and all of the work and dialectics and conversation that it takes to get there. And I found in my experience that there's sort of two different paths. The one starting with a technical capability, where, especially working in machine learning and AI these days, there's just a very rapid progress taking place on the academic side, where seemingly every day, if you go onto this website called Archive, which is a mainstay for academic researchers trying to understand understand the latest and greatest in the technology, and where as opposed to, you know, supposed to publishing peer-reviewed research papers these days, a lot of the academics just publish their work there. So there'll be amazing new things that are possible. Some of those things are ready for prime time and commercialization. And I think that first step of going from what's made it to the way of a research paper down to something that you could reliably deploy and scale within a product is an interesting, I'd say, first pass, and it's changing very quickly within the machine learning world. So one of my favorite examples is thinking about image recognition, so the ability to you know, show a computer an image of a cat and an image of a dog and have it automatically recognize that indeed, without any metadata, without any text, the one image is a cat and the other is a dog. That capability was just barely possible in 2014, 15, when I started my career in machine learning. And by now, Google has already open sourced it as a tool you can download on the internet. So it's gone from possibility to fully commoditized capability in three years. That doesn't mean that it's reliably deployed to solve real people's problems problems. You know, I I love the going from just a useless frivolous application to something that actually is widely used and adopted, you know, that pathway. The flip side in some of my experiences on the B2B side is starting off with an idea and a market need and then aligning the technical capabilities that can really solve that need. And the a market-led or a sales-led strategy, let's say, I think poses a different set of problems for developers who then have to work a lot harder to find the underlying general requirements across a set of disparate individual customer needs, and then the right, you know, the right technical solutions to solve that. Different personalities, different types of motivations will uh, align well with either the first or the second category. And I think it takes a lot of self-awareness for a product manager, as well as people across, you know, across engineering and sales teams to figure out which set of problems is most inspiring for them.
0: So you talked about one past trend. Uh, it's a very interesting cat or dog. I can see com. I'm not sure how commercially viable that is, but I'm sure it would get quite a lot of clicks and uploads of photos. But as far as trends for the future that affect you know, the craft of product management, what do you see coming up that we all should be aware of?
1: So in terms of things that are commercially viable, my boyfriend actually used to work for a company that did porn detection. So actually, I think there was a Silicon Valley episode about this maybe in the first or second season where they use these neural network image recognition tools to identify, they started off, they wanted to do porn detection and ended up actually being good for hot dogs. So these companies like actually exist and presumably have great market potential because there's certainly a lot of porn on the internet. In terms of the ways in which AI is shifting around the craft of product management, for me, the most impactful shift relates to the, the core philosophical shift in how these products are built. So a lot of, you know, the web apps that we know and love were built upon a standard deterministic software development paradigm where it's possible to plan and scope and use either a waterfall or then an agile product development methodology, because you you know how long it takes to build something. And, you know, sometimes the code can be relatively complex. So, you know, it's going to take longer. And sometimes it's just sort of a short add-on to an existing set of capabilities. When we shift into machine learning, the wisdom of the crowd is that suddenly the programs program themselves. And, it, you know, if there's no code required, these are just machine the machines that get smarter and smarter over time. That's a little bit of a pipe dream. There's A lot of interesting research in the domain of automated machine learning that might get us to that phase sometime way off in the future. But these days, a lot of it is about designing a really great scientific experiment. So, starting off by looking through what strategic problem data might help a company solve designing and scoping down an experiment to test to see A, whether or not it's possible to even build a feature or ask that question in the first place using data. B start to do some statistical analysis to see if there actually is a there there to see if there's signal in the data to solve this problem, and then C to design not necessarily like it sometimes it can be ad testing methodologies sometimes it's a different type of controlled experiment to see if by using this data and defining some sort of outcome you actually can achieve the goal you're seeking to achieve or disprove the hypothesis you're seeking to test, and that scientific method requires a slightly different management strategy than the tricks of the trade and agile and and even waterfall that the product management community has developed. And it requires a different way of scoping because a lot of things fail. So you have this great idea and it seems amazing. And at first pass, it looks like the data is structured in a way that it might support the hypothesis. But then once the machine learning scientists look through the data, they realize there's just nothing there. So there's all of these like very rapid adaptations that need to take place in the beginning of a product cycle to make this work. And there's also a different type of liaison between the business side and the technical side that needs to occur because the machine learning scientists they don't just go through and find patterns and data or have the machine find patterns and data that may be meaningful. There's actually the best products are built with a tight elision between somebody who knows a lot about a particular business process or domain having a meaningful conversation with the machine learning team to help them process the data and work with it and ask the right questions so that it can lead to something meaningful. So I think to sort of sum that up, a lot of the basic structure is the same, whereby you know, product is going to work as a, a middleman between a user's need and uh, an engineering team's backlog. But there's a midway step that has introduced, that introduces much more uncertainty than standard product management paradigms are used to.
0: So let's step up a little level uh, and talk about you know, business use cases. You know, specifically at the enterprise, which is an area we both have experience. What interesting uses of AI and machine learning have you seen in the enterprise?
1: So I'll talk a little bit about our particular perspective here at Integrate. So we are working with large consumer enterprises that have customer bases in the millions and tens of millions, et cetera, and helping them shift from their traditional marketing stack where they might do some segmented oriented targeted marketing. So, you know, pick out some demographic subsection of the population and try to target product offerings and messages to them that in in a way that would resonate with their assumed personality. But often those, you know, those segments are fundamentally based upon rules and a person has to go in and update those rules as they learn about campaign effectiveness over time. So there's all of the tooling around analytics that can be used to inform judgments on what the next you know what the next campaign might look like to get better success but it's not really a machine that runs on its own so what we're trying to do is shift this around to true dynamic lifetime value optimization where when a customer comes in on day 1 there is some look-alike type mapping that goes on to gauge the extent to which they're like successful historical customers to forecast their predictive lifetime value and how long they might stay and then predict a next best action that would be relevant, you know, for their, for their uh, wants and needs. And then, you know, using this machine learning apparatus, we get a lot of feedback on what people are actually responding to so that it can dynamically optimize to their wants and needs over time. And for me, what's most exciting about that is less how it becomes a sort of automated marketing stack and more that it leads to a tighter relationship between product and marketing. So we are, the founder of our company came from Facebook and is obsessed with this aha moment within a customer's journey where we interpret that aha moment as a set of early actions in a customer's journey that tend to be tightly correlated with high lifetime value. And if you notice that, you can just focus all of your efforts on getting that one early action to fruition. So the example from Facebook is the apocryphal 10 friends within 14 days, right? So they, you know, their lifetime metric that they wanted to optimize for was daily active users. That's super hard to measure and render tractable. So they noticed doing some analysis that if you get early users to 10 friends within 14 days, that tends to be tightly correlated with the long-term metric they were tracking. So all of the efforts went into like, Get them there, send them emails, suggest friends, right, do everything to, to meet that one smaller metric. And so we are working in the construction of our platform to try to replicate this kind of tooling for large enterprise. And, you know, if somebody gets engaged and is interacting with a brand earlier on, that often is also correlated with their perception of value in the service. So I think there's, there's something altruistic in the way in which it can inform product. Other stuff that I've seen that's super interesting, the, the most interesting project I worked on in my last company, Fast Forward Labs, which is an AI research lab in New York City that was recently acquired by Cloudera, was with a medical device manufacturing company that was making an, a robotic surgeon. So this was a completely automated device that would perform prostate cancer surgery, actually, on, on patients without the intervention of a human. We were working at uh, you know, this, that, that was a, a long-term goal. We were brought in earlier on to do some video analytics work to automatically identify four key instances in a prostate cancer surgery procedure that tended to be of highest risk, and we were automatically identifying them using our machine learning tools and then guiding human users of the tool on uh, how to behave within these risky areas. And then the system was collecting and logging all of that data to put it on the path to future complete automation. A funny side story there was that the hardest part of this project was that the data was disgusting. So my machine learning colleague and I, when we were first sent the sample of the data, it was like these weird bloody you know, p- photos of of men's prostates, and we were like, Ugh. like so the so the technical problem to be faced had nothing to do with how hard the artificial intelligence was. It was just that we kind of wanted to vomit when we looked at the videos. And then the last thing, and I'll mention, I think that the uses of AI in the professional services world, so in law firms, accounting firms, auditing firms, is quite transformational and impactful. It's there's all of the people side of things, of the equation. So regulations and fear of change and all of the obstacles to innovation and embedded inertia that makes technology adoption hard. That is, you know, slowing the path to legal services really just being a different business than it was in the past. But there's a lot of repeated text and content and work, rote work that's done in these environments. And there are also environments where, unlike, say, a self-driving car, there's not a ton of improvisation and the work need not be carried out in a second so sort of instantaneous judgment it's stuff that can be done in a couple of hours or even a couple of weeks and that kind of like long time frame plus repeatability plus huge amounts of past historical data of the right response is sort of a perfect recipe for automation using ai and i think You know, this shift from a build hour model to something where customers are going to expect uh, repeatability and consistency is really going to have a big impact on those industries in the future.
0: So let's talk a little bit more about the robotic prostate cancer surgeon. Now, I, I can imagine that people would be a little apprehensive about that. I mean, it's one thing. You know, and there's a lot of apprehension about self-driving cars, but it's one thing jumping into a car and having an automated system drive you. There's a, a certain degree, I think, of apprehension about that. It's a whole nother thing I would imagine thinking about having someone that's actively cutting you and that person or th- your life, in essence, being put in the hands of uh, a robot, an artificially intelligent robot. What did you see from that perspective?
1: That's a great question. So we were so early in the product development process that I did not see a lot of data on like this actually being used in a customer environment. And to date, it was also akin to, there's four levels, I guess, of or five levels of autonomous vehicles. And it goes from like you know, the autonomous vehicle comes into play when you're parking your car, to the point where it's most of the time autonomous, but you still have a driver there just in case they need to step in to the point where it's fully autonomous. So it's sort of on that maturity pathway with Robotic Surgeon 2, where we were only at the stage where there was a human operator. It was just it was assisted by the machine learning tool. So in that's sort of, I guess, the discourse these days as you talk about augmentation versus automation, I think the, the stage we were at was certainly one of augmentation, where the machine learning algorithms were setting off alarms when the human operator of the tool was reaching a place of high risk, which I think would just add further confidence as opposed to, you know, the concerns about liability and, and allocating actual autonomy and agency to the machines. I think going forward, that's a, it's a great question. And it's funny, as I think about, you know, the use of machine learning in medical contexts, I'll often go back to this notion of probability versus sort of certainty and causality, So there's all these discourses these days around whether or not the machine learning algorithm is explainable. So it might come out with some prediction and it's going to say, here's your lung. We are uh, 95% certain that you don't have cancer. And then the natural question that we, as people will ask is, okay, well, why? What did you see? What what was it in the image of of my lung and the the radiology diagnostics that led to that conclusion? And a human may or may not, actually know the answer to that, but normally we can at least rationalize a response. One of the big issues with machine learning is that these deep neural networks that are powering a lot of the new breakthroughs, they're so complex that it's impossible for them to articulate why they've made a decision. So it's just a correlation between a bunch of data points that you know tends to statistically lead to the output being that a lung might be diagnosed as having cancer. So that that tension where they don't explain themselves is, I think, a huge, a huge social barrier to the adoption of these tools that we're starting to see and increasingly are going to see.
0: Yeah, isn't there a joke about a, a neural network crossing a road?
1: For sure, yeah. That was um, my friend uh, who works at Rethink Robotics in Boston was the one who first introduced me to that.
0: Want to tell our listeners, since they may not have heard it?
1: Yeah, for sure. So it's a you know, standard, why did the chicken cross the road joke? So why did the neural chicken cross the road? And the answer is, you know, we really don't know, but he sure as hell did a good job doing it. So uh, And that's that's kind of what AI is today. It's like, not sure why, but shit, that's fantastic.
0: So. Absolutely, absolutely. So looking into the future, how do you see AI enriching people's lives?
1: Well, I think to a certain extent, this depends on, what people value, right? So for each individual, I think, you know the, the The axes and dimensions through which their life can be enriched is particular to you know to what we value, but for me i while I find some aspects of personalization to be a little creepy, so taking data across various contexts and cobbling that all together to try to target some ad, I think there is some incredible value of personalization that might be enabled in the next five to ten years, so Google as an example is working on updating their hardware on their Android devices so that they'll, each Android is going to have its own graphical processing unit, GPU, which is the type of hardware that supports the latest and greatest in AI. And therefore, because the hardware is pushed out to the device, it can get to know... Each individual, you know, on an individual basis, and it's the device that becomes personalized as opposed to the apps and the software. And I think this is a, a a there's some privacy protecting guarantees there where you know Google doesn't need to actually collect all of your personal information in order to provide you with smart products. It can uh, do all that processing locally and then just sort of have like a uh, best practices that are shared across populations with the company as a whole. And that's a pretty big. Shift in terms of how we think about privacy. And then, you know, what's cool about the capabilities that that enables is, you know, I, I think there's wonderful personalization where you can be introduced to experiences and discoveries you wouldn't have otherwise. So I travel a lot for my job, given talks in different places around the world. And like the example of, you know, flying to Berlin only having 24 hours and wanting to really optimize my experience without having to do a lot of research work in advance. I'm too busy to, you know, scan the internet and read through travel guides, et cetera. So I would love to have a device that knows me well enough that it could suggest some really cool avant-garde theater that's nearby, you know, the conference where I was giving a talk and a great sushi restaurant that's right nearby, right? So it really is aware of my tastes and preferences and can help me make the most of, of this short time we have in life. I also think, you know, going back to these fears we talk about with AI adoption in the workplace, people are really concerned about job loss and the future of work and machines automating away a lot of the work we do today. I tend to believe that we have yet to, we, we can't imagine some of the new work that the use of this technology is going to create and that actually, a lot of the tasks that it can automate are those that tend to be repetitive, tend to require less creative thought and strategic thought and synthetic thought. And that there might be a great shift in what our culture values, moving more towards what generalists can provide and the emotional side of things. So, you know, it'd be a wonderful world if 15 years or I guess 50 years in the future, teachers and nurses and those that, you know, have more soft skills suddenly the the scales tip and those are the types of roles in society that are are most valued because technology can automate away some of the more quantitative work.
0: So pulling it back to product managers, how, how do you think product managers should think about integrating AI into their product offerings today?
1: So first off, I think not every product should have AI integrated into it. So there's a ton of hype around the space. And I think just about every company out there is thinking, about what this means and how they might incorporate or integrate AI. And I think that there's a lot of functionality that can be accomplished using rules and deterministic systems and still provide a lot of value to users. So the first thing product managers should ask is if this really is, if AI is really required or if they should, they would be better served by sticking with a different type of technology stack. The next is to really align use of artificial intelligence with the problems that a company's trying to solve. And I like to think about machine learning products as solving one of two types of problems. There can be operational problems. So this is the kind of stuff we do at Integrate AI, where it's less about what product is being offered to customers and more about getting people to engage more, be that by you know reducing churn or getting more customers in. So This this is less on the product side and more on the business ops side, but there's all sorts of opportunities to use data in creative ways to engage with larger customer bases and optimize those kinds of relationships. When it comes to the actual product, all of this starts with the data that is available to train the algorithms. So sort of the first pass for product developers is to think about what kind of unique and proprietary data set they might be able to amass based upon the ways in which users engage with the product. And so there could be like, if if I could make a decision, a change as a product manager in the next couple of weeks that requires not a lot of planning and it's just, but it could have incredible leverage and differential impact. It would be to add some sort of widget or pixel onto the product to start to collect a new sort of data around what users are doing. And then with that data, sort of the sky's the limit. I mean, there's the the big breakthroughs in terms of new developments in the research community deal with being able to use richer types of data sets than we've been able to use historically. So images, text, video, et cetera. And I think um, moving the mindset from needing to have these sort of structured oriented data points to make any sense of algorithms to thinking about the types of capabilities that are available with images and text, et cetera, is is really where there's some watershed opportunity and speech as well. I didn't even include speech into the mix. The other thing is it's more of a front-end design principle than it is sort of a back-end AI principle. But the all of the uh, hype around conversational interfaces, etc, and making interfaces more natural for human users. I think that in terms of a great product experience. There's All sorts of ways in which the front end can be modified to just make it a little bit more natural for people to engage with with products.
0: So one of the concerns that comes up on the other side of things is this privacy, right? As artificially intelligent ad systems or machine learning-based ad systems learn more and more about our habits, our behavior, and, you know, our likely purchasing intent. Where do we draw this line on privacy? Now, I've heard, too, that on the digital side, you know, we've obviously heard about Facebook and the issues they've had most recently. But I also hear from other people in the media industry that what Facebook knows about us isn't nearly as much as some of the credit card and, and financial companies know about us. But the digital side, obviously, is a lot more visible to a common everyday person. But going back to that thought on privacy, you know, how do we allow artificially intelligent systems, machine learning-based systems to service ads that are more optimal, more geared towards us, or actually do things in general, like you were talking about the theater, right? The theater recommendation. They need to know a lot about you to make that theater recommendation. So how do we get this value from them and then at the same time draw that line on privacy? And where, where do we draw that line on privacy?
1: It's a great question. I mean, and there's all sorts of sub questions. Some of them are technical, some of them have to do with legal structures related to consent, right? So I loved Zeynep Tufekki's article in the New York Times after the Facebook hack, where she basically says a lot of the legal architecture and infrastructure that's set up there is based upon this notion that we as users can come in and we, you know, click some button or just by means of using the service, we're tacitly consenting to whatever data privacy policies exist on the back end. And it's kind of a legal fiction by this point. I think a lot of people in the privacy community have come to terms with that. And so there's, I anticipate we're going to see some updates to regulations and thinking about privacy law over the next couple of years. It's already happening in the European Union with the new GDPR regulations that are going to go into effect in about a month and a half. And, you know, it would be another podcast length of material to talk about what those mean. So uh, I'll just pivot that there technically, the thing that I'm most excited about is a new privacy technique called differential privacy. So you mentioned, you know, we went back to that example with the Android, where the device is going to be personalized, and it's really going to know me. And as I mentioned there, what's remarkable about that, and is a big win for privacy is that it actually means that Google never has to directly collect all of the personal data, it can still get smart about trends across customer bases without needing to house all of that data centrally. And I think this kind of architecture is gonna be sort of the wave of the future where things become much more distributed as opposed to having this centralized cloud model where the big behemoth companies, a la Facebook and Amazon, et cetera, are are sort of housing everything on on their own sites. And so what enables that is a privacy technique called differential privacy that is best fit for the machine learning world. And it's one where, in the, well, whereas in the past, the value of data lied within the individual data point. So it's basically, it'd be flows of information and it would move, you know, the data would move from place to place. It might be on our computer, we might pass it over to our healthcare provider, we might pass it to our bank, et cetera. When we think about AI products, they really work at the level of statistical distributions. And so, you know, I, Catherine, you, Eric, we just become one data point in like a, you know, a normal distribution, one of those bell curves. And what's interesting there is that the privacy game actually shifts. Whereas when we think about, you know, being an individual and somebody being able to recognize us and pick us out of a hat, in the old world, the more data you had, the higher risk it would be that you'd be able to sort of, you know, find something that that could compromise a business or find the individual. In this uh, machine learning and distribution-oriented world, if there's a ton of data points in that bell curve, we get lost. You know, we're just one of many. And there's actually privacy. It's stronger, a stronger supportive privacy with the more data that there is. And then there's these techniques that we can use to basically add a little bit of noise and and modify the math slightly so that it becomes impossible to reverse engineer the statistical distribution to find the individual. It's a little bit technical, so happy to talk about that more. But the moral of the story is that there's this ironic paradoxical twist where it might actually be the more data the better when it comes to protecting individual privacy rights, as long as we add on some additional technical features that can shift around the data to make it's safe, while also continuing to provide the value that we need for our machine learning algorithms.
0: That'll be a, a tough story, I think, to sell to the public. The more data, the safer you are as far as being able to be you know, personally identified. Just, I know. Uh, It's going to conflict with people's common sense. But at the same time, common sense doesn't always seem to be right. Like, If you think about self-driving cars, I talk to people and they're like, I wouldn't want to get into one until it's 100% safe. And I think about, and, and Google tells me that, What's the number? 1.3 million people die in road crashes each year, according to Google, right? And I'm thinking self-driving cars probably have better odds than a 16-year-old boy that just learned to drive, right? So people's perceptions and expectations, I think, are going to need to change. Any thoughts on that?
1: I think this is the critical question of the age. I think you've hit the nail on the head because there's all of these things that like you said, they're paradoxical, they're counterintuitive. It's almost like thinking about, it's too bad we called it global warming as opposed to climate change. Because, you know, for an individual where it's suddenly, for example, I'm in Toronto, and it was snowing yesterday, it's the early April. And that actually might be normal for Toronto. Um, you know, having been an American who recently moved to Canada, but like, it certainly doesn't feel like the world's getting any, any warmer. But that's all our individual subjective viewpoint. And we don't naturally think in terms of probabilities across a larger space. And that's the same issue with self-driving cars, as you pointed out, where you know the technology will reduce deaths and accidents overall. It seems to be sort of consensus uh, across the community. And yet that knowledge, that abstract probabilistic knowledge, it's not as strong and it's not as visceral as the images of seeing a car crash. And we seem to hold machines to higher standards than we do humans. And I think we would benefit human, the human race if we were to think a little bit differently and reassess what technology can and should do and think about it not as, you know, sort of perfect, right, but as fallible as we are and often replicating some of the mistakes that we've made in the past because these systems are all trained on data. But nonetheless, if we design them right, a little bit better, you know, than we've been in the past.
0: Yeah, and and maybe it's just, you know, some of us are a little more, to pull up an old Star Trek reference, more Spock guys than Kirk guys, right? We have logical thought processes or responses versus emotional ones to certain situations. And you just look at the numbers and make a judgment based upon that versus an emotional response to, you know, things like an accident that was caused by a a self-driving vehicle. Yep, for sure. So another subject altogether, you know, we both work in the software industry and work in technology. What's your favorite software product and why is it your favorite?
1: So I found this one to be a hard question to ask. And I had some intuitions in going into it. And then I actually crowdsourced some other folks in my company to see what they thought. And multiple people said Spotify. And I was like, oh, yes, I also love Spotify. I think it's a wonderful product. And it's Basically, my number one tool at work. Uh, I work in an open format office, uh, standard, you know, contemporary startup type deal, and there's a lot of noise, and I have trouble concentrating, so I need to block out the rest of the world in order to get stuff done. So I, without fail, listen to this track called Thursday Afternoon by Brian Eno, who's sort of a minimalist composer from the '90s, '80s, and '90s. Actually, I think he goes back to the '70s. So that's on constantly during the day. So it's like it's this great white noise. That keeps me able to concentrate at work. And then alongside that, I find that their recommendation and algorithms and the the new music that I discover week by week is fantastic. I think they've just continually added on a couple of features that make it super easy for the user to engage with the system to make it better over time. So, you know, there's lots of products out there that have the thumbs up and thumbs down that are, you know, just this easy to develop a habit. I, I know that my friend Nirayal has been on one of your podcasts before and just thinking about the excellence of simple design that nonetheless tightly aligns with function and need to make the product ever better for the user. It's they, They've just done an extraordinary job with it. And they also have some super cool machine learning stuff on the back end. They developed their music library differently than Pandora and started off with more of a collaborative filtering model where it was like you know, if Catherine listens to this and Eric listens to the same type of music, we're going to use those affinities to suggest the next step. And they've been at the vanguard of applying machine learning to actually make representations of the qualities of the music itself and then align those representations with a user's past history. So not only is it a great and useful product, but it's actually one of the most sophisticated uses of machine learning that I've seen. So yeah, love it overall.
0: It's awesome kind of, you know, there's a lot of comparison now that the stock is public too, though, like the Netflix of music, right? And some of that comes from the recommendations where, you know, for you it's based on Brian You know Thursday afternoons. For me right now, I think it's Kay Flay and Saint Vincent uh, nice. that keeps me focused. Slightly, slightly different choices, but mine change a lot. So other words of wisdom, you know, going back to product leadership, product managers, what words of wisdom would you impart to those people?
1: So I've done, we're hiring product managers right now at the company, and I've seen a spectrum of different candidates over the last couple of weeks. And the ones that strike me as great versus, you know, decent, but not popping are are those that are super focused on details. I always like to think about product management as being like Sherlock Holmes, where fact is stranger than fiction. So speculation and what we think might be the truth tends never to be all that useful. What's really useful is going out into the world and paying super close attention to a user and their needs and their and their situation and where that fits within a business process and getting into the nitty gritty details. And that's sort of where the magic happens, I find. So I think um, always going further, always pushing further, being weary of abstractions is the greatest advice I would give. It's hard for me to take that advice I tend to have a more abstract mind, so I'm constantly fighting to bring myself down. My colleague Tyler is, I think, one of the the sharpest minds I've seen in that way. He's just able to to really go deep on everything that he considers.
0: Love the Sherlock Holmes reference. You know, great work. So final question, three words to describe yourself.
1: Okay, so I think intensely curious, always wanting to push further and learn new things, intensely self-critical, and then empathetic those are it's me in a nutshell
0: (laughs) awesome well this was great i really enjoyed the conversation thanks for joining us today
1: yeah thanks so much for inviting me had
0: a good time